Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with the For a Moment at Home, Teos Abadia. Hey Teos, how does it feel hey. to be sitting in a chair? Uh, it, it's amazing to be at home and uh, sleep in my bed and all of that. I greatly appreciate it and can't wait for it to last all the way until the day that this podcast launches. So by the time people <laughs> hear this, I will no longer be at home and it, that part is rough. But I have all the perspective a kid could ever need in this life because my daughter is going to college and uh, I am staring at becoming 50. So between those two, oh, and I watched everything everywhere all at once on the plane and you know all the perspective yeah. in the world is now mine there you go you you have become one with the universe um, yeah i'm, I'm kind of done with seconds. multiverses actually like i think yeah. that movie has i'm good we can now no longer multiverse all right i'm 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 down with that i'm <laughs> down with that and we're also down with our listeners uh, who sometimes share their feedback with us and we've got a a good one uh from eric commander uh from from the website and eric's eric listened to our take on 5e so far yeah. uh, and some of our discussion he had a few things to say and i think his his comments while while keen and insightful and you know very very important because i'm sure uh, eric represents more than just himself in in our listener base it's yeah. good to talk about these things since you and i sort of go on and and don't since we don't often disagree we don't get sort of that that uh that insight. i think we do disagree sean i i don't believe I just, that yeah uh, no. so so uh this is from eric and i just wanted to use it kind of as a springboard and we will for our main topic today continue this discussion so uh but i wanted yeah. to get this out of the way first uh Eric says uh, that I can't help but think you're underestimating the challenges involved in replacing the current 3D6 ability system with a modifier-only system, in addition to rare occurrences where the actual ability scores matter, which are very few and can be changed uh, easily. We should also consider that not everyone wants an all-PCs-are-equal system. Many enjoy playing with random result ability score generation that, that it can provide. Uh, people who enjoy playing the role-playing aspect of the game can embrace these shortcomings just like we can all relate to and advocate for leaning into a PC's flaws. And this is absolutely true. Uh, n nothing that you said is, mm -hmm. is wrong. I don't think it would be that hard to replace the 3D6 ability score system. I think it's, the, it's, it's nostalgia. It's been around forever. And so sometimes we as game designers or as players have a hard time thinking of what might replace it, uh, but it could easily be done. Uh, right. No, no problem there. Uh, right. But I, mean, I we, think we it's... can take the point by table and just right. make it about the pluses and yeah. remove any. Yeah. And, and I just, this is an important place to remind everyone who's listening that when we are talking about this, when Teos and I are talking about it, we're talking about it as game designers, not as fans, not as you know, people who have been playing for 40, 50 years, but as game designers and what, what could be better or what could yeah. be different and what do those differences mean. And so this isn't about what I want. It's not about what Teos wants. It's not right. about what you, listener, yourself and your game want. It's about what's best for the game system as a whole. Mm -hmm. And we can agree or disagree on some of those points. Um, so you can, even if you get rid of the 3D6 system and the, and, you know, however you make your ability scores, you can still have 
unequal PCs with a modifier only system. Uh, there are ways of doing that. When you do it with a modifier only system though, it reinforces the fact that the PCs are unequal. Uh, you, anything to, to add with that? Yeah, well, two things. One is, uh, you kind of said this one of the previous ones, but but our approach also in doing this kind of review is to think of it as sort of what you would go into the job of redesigning 5E. And that's what you might go into, say, a conference room full of full of other designers with this idea and say to everybody, all right, folks, we've got to talk about this ability score versus modifier system. Here are the various problems. What can we do about it? And it might be that at the end of all that design, we wouldn't come up with something better. And so you would just stick to the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. But, but you would want to, we would want to, you know, what we're saying in these conversations is this is what we want to tackle and we'd want to confront because they're problems. Like it's when you look at the design of 5e and how it uses ability scores sort of in the background, but it doesn't do anything with them. And it's really the modifier that matters. That's a problem. That's a weird design thing. And when you look at why does it exist? Well, it's nostalgia. Yeah. You know, do we need that when most of the right. half the player base is brand new? I don't know. We do. Yeah, exactly. And so, and again, when we say that it's a problem, we don't, you can, you might say it's never been a problem for me and that's mm -hmm. great. We're not talking yeah. about you. We're talking about right. the game. Yeah. Or me. What we right. Can like, do. <laughs> right. I can play with a four strength uh, as a fighter. Like, like it's not like I can't play yeah. that way. And I've, I've done various things like that and it can be super fun. But, but when you look at the game as a whole and you see, you know, tons of brand new players at a convention and so on, you know, what is it that's really, you see across all of that, all of that play. Right. Exactly. Uh, so Eric continues anecdotally, when I started running games for my kids and their friends, we had seven players. I asked them to roll the 46 dropping the lowest and then uh, trying not to rearrange the order of the roles, playing whatever is most appropriate, whatever class is most appropriate. Uh, one of the players rolled you know, low, 14 was the high and everything else was either 10 or lower. Uh, the assumption was that the player at the table would re-roll but uh, I asked them to give it a session or two, and they decided to carry on. We agreed that they would play an adolescent rogue. And by the end of the first session, they loved their character and never stopped all the way up to eighth level. Okay, great anecdote. Uh, I've played campaigns like that where we all played like a strength of, you know, the highest ability score is 10. Everything there is lower. Right. Lots of fun. Great fun. It can be fun to play a less than proficient character. You can totally have fun. But again, we're talking about what's best for the game overall, not what certain subsets of people are willing to tolerate. Right, right. right. We, you, you have fun despite that, not because of that. And uh, if you look at it as a game designer, the, the game is different, right? And I, I think I've shared this before. There was a time I was playing Lords of Waterdeep and I saw this card and I said, wait, this can't be balanced. And I reached out over Twitter to one of the game designers who I happen to know and, and said, you know, what's up with this card? This card, I think it's too strong. And they gave me an answer that was something like, no, no, that one's 3.5. Mm -hmm. Like, like literally the card had a value, right? right? And what it was is I'd misread the card. So I didn't understand what it did, but, but not only was it that I had misread it, but there is literally a mathematical equation that drives what the quest cards in Lords of Waterdeep are doing yep. and, and they're balancing those, right? 
because they see all of the game versus I just see a card that I misread. <laughs> but, right. but, and that's the kind of thing. And so if you look at what ability scores and their modifiers are doing, there, there is an expectation of what that range is supposed to work. And, and if you look at over levels, what characters have for ability scores, it's actually quite tenuous, the model of how those ability scores fit into the various DCs in the world. Mm -hmm. And making those worse isn't really what the addition has in mind. Right. You can, of course, have fun, but it is contrary to the game's design to do so. And that's okay. I mean, I've mm -hmm. broken games a lot of times. And again, it can be super fun. But when you're looking at the game overall and you're stepping away from all... from, from a group of players and looking at everybody, then that, that kind of thing becomes salient, right? That the game has mm -hmm. this sort of, it yeah. hinges upon this interaction and this expectation. Right. right. And one of the strengths that is also one of the weaknesses of a game like D&D and other role-playing games with game masters is game masters can cover up a lot of problems with a game, right? You can have characters that have all very high role, you know, high stats except for the one character that has all low stats. And you as the game master can carefully work around that low statted character. So even though they are weaker, they are still contributing and they are they still feel like part of the team. Whereas another game master may not have that ability or that understanding. And every other game session, or if not every game session, the character who only has 12 hit points because they have a low constitution where everyone else has 50 <laughs> or plus hit points, uh, you know, that's yeah. where you need to, the game needs to work it out rather than the game master. Yeah. So, and, and, and that's a lot of what this design is trying to do. You're trying to design the best game possible to facilitate any group having a blast, not just yeah. those that are amazing role players or who love a challenge or anything like that, right? Like I had a game during 2E when the skills and powers and options books all came out. Yeah. And I sat down at this brand new campaign with just a regular old character that was sort of a little bit of a weak concept. I was just kind of having fun with sort of mixing spell class and classes. And everybody had like plus five to hit and damage and things like that because they'd min-maxed all of these mm -hmm. things in the skills and powers books. And and I had none of that. And immediately the game was unfun for me. And it's not mm -hmm. that I couldn't have found a way out of it, but the basis of the game, the way that some people had dug into the options and others had not, mm -hmm. made for an unfun game and right. forced me to decide, do I want to stay in this campaign or do I want to try to find some way to enjoy this? And in the end, my time was too precious and I just left the campaign. Right. Yep. So, you know, it's, it's always, it's always uh, looking at the game, not looking at what you could get away with or what a game master, if they break the rules or if they massage the rules can make fun. It needs to be fun from the start. Uh, and the final yeah. comment from Eric is regarding alignment. I've had a lot of success in my games by redefining alignment thusly. Alignment represents tendencies, and there are degrees within each alignment. Good characters prioritize the well-being of many. Evil characters prioritize their own well-being, et cetera, et cetera. And this comes from, you know, our talk about our disagreement even about right. yeah. where alignment can be in a game and belong in a game. And so, you know, my, my answer to this is alignment is what it is. Uh, in the game, it's been too... Uh, two words put together good well three words good evil 
neutral or chaotic, neutral, lawful. And while those definitions, you can define them in your home game in any way you want. Especially if you're while Exactly. And while those definitions may make sense to you, just the words themselves have other definitions to other people. So the game needs to define them. And if the game does not do a good job in defining them and how they work, not only in the story, but also in the rules, then you are in for problems. What makes it worse is good, evil, law, chaos, neutrality. Those things have their own philosophical and intellectual weight behind them from philosophy and history and religion and so on, that everyone brings their own baggage to the table, making it more of a confusing issue than not. So, you know, alignment has been around since the start of D&D. And so in that sense, it is a game design tool. I think it is a flawed tool. And in the intervening years, we've had better tools introduced to us that we can use rather than the flawed tool of alignment. Yeah, I, and, and I, I, I agree with you. While I do think, and I would love to see Wizards of the Coast produce a campaign setting where they showcase what alignment could be and what at times it has been in some editions in some campaigns. I would like to see it, and I believe it can be done. And, and mm-hmm. you know, again, if I were going into the, the, the meeting room to say, all right, everybody, let's tackle alignment, I would like I would almost approach it like let's can we save it and if so how right mm-hmm. but I agree with you that if I look at something like 13th age that has instead of alignment come up with the idea of these icons mm-hmm. that are major forces and personages of the world that capture the concept of alignment in some ways right it would mm-hmm. be the super lawful side kind of icon of the world it would be the trickster neutral aspect of the world and so on and by either following those or being in conflict with those you are kind of putting yourself on an access but also because these are things that are actually in the world and are defined in the world they create super interesting relationships right the forces of the diabolist are out there the Mm -hmm. dragons are warring against one another and play a vital role in the world and so when you are blind or opposed to one of these, it creates really interesting relationships and interactions in the world. And Mm -hmm. if you just give a character sheet these days to a new player and you say, Hey, you're, you know, chaotic neutral, it quickly fades into nothingness because nothing in the game is actually feeding off of that. It's a strange tool to guide your actions but no longer really does so the way it used to back when these rules were created. Right. And, and the, you just, you just made my point for you in the 13th age example <laughs> in, in that, in that game, those quote unquote alignments are defined. Yeah. Right. Whereas in D and D it's impossible to define these vague concepts. Yeah. If you, if you give them both game mechanical meaning and story meaning and world you know, world setting slash meaning, then you can use them much better than just these yeah. vague philosophical terms. So, and, I mean, yeah. I'll challenge anybody, especially those who go to conventions often or play an organized play, have everybody 
promise not, you know, like flip their character sheets over and ask them what their alignments are. Mm -hmm. And if you could go back in time and do that during third edition or second edition, you would have had a close to 100% accurate recall in second edition or third edition of players telling you what their alignment are. Right. In 5e, I bet you almost no one will remember their alignment. You know, maybe mm -hmm. one or two out of six will remember their alignment because it's so inconsequential to players. Like just, it just, no one will remember right. it. And, and I've played, I've tried this out at conventions and yeah. it's, it's, everybody laughs, right? They're like, wow, I had no idea that I didn't know what my alignment is, but I, I didn't, you know, cause, right. cause it, it hasn't mattered since character creation for a lot of those players. Right. Because there's no spell in the game that if it's cast on right. you does, you know, 20 d6 damage if you are <laughs> of a certain alignment or not of a different yeah. alignment so and, yeah and no absolutely and no creature is defined as only speaking to people who are of this alignment and no door right. can only be opened by people you know almost never there yeah. are a few right. exceptions but it's yeah. yeah the game is not revolving around it and so if it isn't then why is this vestige sitting around here eating up space and clogging yep. up brain power for new players right yep so as always, Eric, thank you for, for yeah, your thoughts, your you. comments, and I hope they spurred some some uh, new insights and some new explanations of, yeah. of what Teos and I are doing here. And again, it's not about, you know, like the idea that somehow uh, Eric is right or wrong or we're right or wrong. Right. It, it's, you know, what we're trying to look at is what are the things in, when you look at the task of redoing 5e, what are the nails that feel like you need to bring a hammer to them? And and maybe at the end of the of the meetings, you would say, well, no, we're going to leave it the way it is, you know, mm -hmm. or find yeah. a way to, to make it so it works for both Eric and for everybody else. Right. Right. Uh, right. That that's kind of what we're trying to talk about and explore. And, and it doesn't mean that anything we come up with is correct. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's not correct at all. And it, uh, sometimes that would take it on. Yeah. And sometimes the marketing of something, is just as important as the game design of something. So sometimes we'll have to you know, jump into our conversation with, well, I would change this game design wise, but marketing wise, this would kill the game. <laughs> so this needs to be added or this needs to remain out of the game. You know, if we want to be able to sell it to the widest audience. And I, yeah, I'll make a prediction that, you know, Dragonlance has sort of communicated in, in one of the early Unearthed Arcanas that it would lean into alignment. Then we saw a revision that did so far less. I will guess that it will be almost non-existent by the time the final product comes out. I'd love to be wrong, but that would be, mm -hmm. if I had to put money down, it'll be that this whole alignment nonsense will be gone from there by the end of it. And that's a shame because again, I'd love to see something really mm -hmm. show us how it can be done. But I bet that as they work through the design, they'll just strip it out because it's just getting in the way of things. Please yeah. prove me wrong, please. Okay. <laughs> We will we will find out maybe uh, by December fifth or sixth, but that's a whole other story. Uh, Segway, yeah. So D and D news: uh, a new book has been listed on Amazon.ca for a December sixth release, and we are assuming that this is the Dragonlance book. Uh, our one of the best fans in the gaming industry, super fan Dave Rosser, points out that in Dragonlance lore, December 6th is Thanks a Lot Day, when Kendra <laughs> give thanks for all the things that have fallen into their pockets. So maybe the, if, if this is not the Dragonlance book that is set for release on December 6th, that is a huge coincidence. Um, that is great. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll hear on August 18th. So the day this show drops, we're getting uh, Wizards of the Coast Presents. Uh, so they're we're assuming they're going to announce that and many more things. Yeah. Uh, and also Spelljammer will be in our hands. If they're not, if it's not in your hands already, tomorrow, as of this recording, it, it comes out on like D&D Beyond and in stores. Um, so we will know a little bit more about that as well. And you, Mr. Abadia... Are writing, are writing Roll20 blogs about Spelljammer. Uh, what's the latest one? Well, so the the one that came out uh, last week was a two-part series on all of the creatures in Spelljammer. Uh, and the fun part for me was seeing just how many Dark Sun creatures are in Spelljammer. Mm. And I... On my own blog, I postulated that I don't really know what that means. Is it is Darkson being stripped for parts, or is it uh, a warm up to lead us towards it? Who knows? Yeah. Um, the latest blog, which uh, it's the final blog in the series, has just been turned in. So uh, you will soon see a review of locations and NPCs in the Spelljammer setting, and then we're all going to have the books in our hands. Uh, and I'm super excited to talk about uh, what I've seen in Spelljammer and. and and all the potential it offers. Looking forward to that. We have a bunch of news about new products, not necessarily D&D products, but D&D adjacent products. The first is a reboot of the HeroScape game from Avalon Hill. Uh, so in 2004, HeroScape debuted. It was distributed by Milton Bradley, which is a subsidiary of, of Hasbro. And HeroScape was like a scaled-down wargaming game that was supposed to appeal to a little bit younger audience it lasted until 2010 when it was discontinued but recently it was announced that HeroScape will return with an expansion called age of annihilation um, this is coming from gamerrant.com so we will keep an eye on that did you play HeroScape? I did not. I, I saw it played uh, and I, you know, looked at it often and I even stripped a few of the miniatures for, for use in, in my games, um, you know, as a sort of supplement to the early D&D minis. Um, I, I think this is the kind of thing that's possible because of the way Hasbro Pulse operates where they can, you know, crowdfund and, and, and build additional excitement around a brand this way. I, I did find it strange that it's coming back because I think it was something that, that when I talked to people who liked it, they sort of seemed to acknowledge that, yeah, it's a bit of a tough sale, but, you know, if you really work on it hard and you can enjoy it and, but, but who knows, you know, who knows what has been changed and tweaked and updated about it. So, did you play yeah. it? I did not. It was sort of the same thing. I saw it, but I was so focused on D and D at the time. Uh, that was when I started my freelancing career. So I just never had time to, to delve any deeper. And, and I just, you know, very quickly to add here, because it's all through the Avalon Hill side of things, but, um, you know, it's interesting to see what they've done with HeroQuest, which I think was an easier sell on, on fans and, you know, met with wide interest when it was announced, but they continue to push things out. They've got a new hero that they just announced. Uh, you know, we talked about the recent expansion. So all of these HeroQuest things keep coming out. So clearly the whole Hasbro Pulse system has been very good for that brand. And, and maybe that that is the kind of thing that can lead to success here. Yeah. And speaking of Hasbro Pulse, another D&D adjacent game has been put up on Pulse for, for uh, pre-order. This is the Yawning Portal board game. 
this iconic inn attracts fascinating adventurers with one thing in common. They're famished and have unique tastes in food. <laughs> As part of the tavern staff, feed them by matching up food tokens with the orders pictured on their hero card. Earn colored gems and points for every matching food token and a bonus for completing an order. This will be available on uh, January, February, March 1st, 2023, up for pre-order now. It's $55.99 for one to four players ages 12 and up. Yeah, I, I mean, what I heard from other folks was, uh, yes, I wanted a Yawning Portal board game. Did I want this game to be about food tokens? Like, this sounds like a game I would play on my phone. And, and But, I, you know, maybe it's really super fun to play. Who, who knows? Yeah. Uh, I, I will await hearing reviews of what the gameplay is like before I decide to go for a food matching game. Yeah, I, I, it, it played it, it. The description of it looked like it played more. Is there a game called Alchemy? There, there's one where you sort of, it's a sort of resource management where you, you know, yeah. on your turn you can draw this or draw that, and it seemed to be that sort of, yeah, stra- a resource management strategy game, uh, with just a dark sun or a dark sun. Here I go, <laughs> uh, yawning portal. Um, yeah as its theme yeah i mean uh maybe it's awesome right i mean it's sort of like i was playing lords of Waterdeep recently and it's like you know this game just functions on its own but it happens to be all about D, but but you don't necessarily need to know that to have a blast with it so maybe this works that way i i, I, I certainly would like to try it um the yeah. theme of it did not make me make me immediately want to drop the 56 dollars on it but um true but i i hope to i would i would love to try it all right. Well, are you willing to drop money on the movie toys? Because that is also uh, coming out. The Nerdist in an article tells us that Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves exclusive toys are on their way. And the first we've heard about is the Gelatinous Cube exclusive. For thirty three ninety nine, you can get a bunch of magic items and equipment that you can press onto the outside of the gelatinous cube, and a six-inch figure will fit inside the cube, which tells us that there are probably more figures coming. I got I to gotta admit that um, I found that this fulfilled the nostalgia in two ways. One is reminding me of the old toys that I never owned, but uh, my wealthier friends owned. Two that I always thought, like, while I wanted D&D figures, I always thought they weren't that great. And I looked at the pictures of this, and I thought, this is not that great. Like, it's a gelatinous cube on which I can sort of see hinges, and I get 14 magic items that it seems like all I do is press them into the obvious spots where they go on the gelatinous cube. Yeah. Is that fun? Is that cool? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, well, I don't know. I, well, what I, would I'm it have been this. cool for your seven-year-old self? That's the yes, question. That's for sure. Because then you can put the put the uh, heroes inside as they get eaten up, and yeah, mm-hmm. and and I think it, it needs to be said. I, as far as I can tell, this is not like this. These aren't for your minis, your gaming table. No, this is just the the toy that you can inch. play with. Yeah, yeah. These these are yeah. You would either play with it or you know put it on your mantle or office or you know desk or something like that. But yeah. So the toys are, this is Hasbro, so the toys Mm -hmm. have to be coming. Uh, We got an article from ICV2 
saying that role-playing games are the story of the year in the hobby tabletop industry. Uh, you want to tell us more about this? Yeah, so they report that, uh, you know, they do a quarterly update. So this matches sort of what the spring quarter is revealing. And uh, it seems that things are strong enough, sales are strong enough that they could sort of say, RPGs are having an incredible year in 2022 with steady growth that they've seen tracing back to the launch of 5e in 2014. And they quote a hobby distributor who says, D&D is king by leaps and bounds, don't get me wrong, but the number of RPGs that were significant contributors to sales was 40 different brands. So suggesting that you've got this runaway 5e that is, as we've many times heard before, you know, lifting the rising tide is lifting all boats, right? So, yeah. so 5e's success propels all these other sales of RPGs. And, um, and yeah, and I, and, I, and that's a, that's an interesting and very positive thing to hear. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, uh, the second spot went to Pathfinder, not surprisingly, who have a large amount of, um, you know, product in the sales pipe in, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of what's at game stores. The third spot went to this generalized category of 5e compatible, although they mentioned Darrington Press from Critical Role and Goodman Games as a, uh, you know, as as the the leaders of those, uh, and numbers four and five came in, and I was surprised, and then I wasn't. Uh, four and five were both these Hasbro-based games from Renegade Studios, uh, GI Joe, and the Power Rangers role-playing game. So, you know, in game stores, we are seeing these other role-playing games, uh, you know, being put onto shelves and actually coming off the shelves and into the hands of gamers, which is great to see. And, and we see the, the, especially the four and five spot switching up a fair bit. I mean, it wouldn't shock me if number six is the Transformers RPG by right. Renegade Game Studios for Hasbro. Um, but, but we've seen, you know, it's been um, the, uh, um, Oh, I can't even think of all the different games, but it, you know, it's been Call of Cthulhu, and mm -hmm. then it's been the uh, Cyberpunk. Uh, you know, there have yeah. been a number of changes, kind of at, at those lower slots, uh, which which all think I think speaks to that kind of how games are sort of rising and, and falling as they are released, which mm -hmm. is which is good. I think that's generally yeah. healthy. It, it shows a diversity there. The thing that always worries me is when it the game when the list is all D and D. And it's yeah. a little bit like that here, right? Number one is D and D, plain old D and D. Number two is Pathfinder D and D. Number mm -hmm. three is D and D sold by other companies, and four yeah. and five are Hasbro through another company. And it's it's a little, yeah. you know, yeah. But <laughs> yeah, we have to remember that this is also just by game distributors. This is yes. this doesn't tell us, you know. Sometimes we quote the uh, is it the Or Group where it t looks at the online play. That's where we see. You know, games like Call of Cthulhu and, and these, yeah. these other games from other companies, because they may not get into people's hands through a distributor. They may get through uh, direct, direct sales purchases at the website or a PDF or Amazon or, right, or all of those things. And so we know people are playing those other games. And we assume if they're playing those other games that they bought those other games through a different yeah. venue. So this is just one piece of the larger picture of where we where we are but what's what's good to hear is that growth is continuing not just for D&D but for all games. Yeah. 
uh, Jeff Stevens, friend of the show, runs a podcast, an interviewing streaming show, sorry, called Jeff Talks RPGs. Uh, he's been on hiatus for a bit, but he comes back in his next episode to talk to your friend and mine, Scott Gray. Um, he interviews Scott on the topic of editing, de uh, developmental editing, and proofreading, and why those each are very important in making your favorite tabletop role-playing games. Uh, Jeff also announced an upcoming Spelljammer resource called Trinkets and Treasures, which will, which will be released on the DMs Guild, providing, guess what? Magic items, trinkets, and treasures for the Spelljammer setting. And that, all of that is on the Ginny Love Day uh, streaming channel. Yeah, and then I have to share with you this great Mike Shea blog um, on building resilient campaigns. And it, it's pretty interesting. He had a, a situation in his Numenera campaign where a development caused it to all of a sudden jump 14 months into the future. And this happened mid-session. And he had to immediately come up with, okay, if it's been 14 months, what happens? What's changed? You know, what are the villains doing? What are the various factions doing? How does this all survive? And, and he said, you know, it made him really think through how do you as a DM build a resilient campaign? And how can you kind of create a checklist that helps you think through whether you're being uh, resilient in your campaign design such that it can accommodate these wide changes and therefore be flexible, right? Flexible to the things the characters do, things the game might do. Um, you know, imagine a, the deck of many things gets pulled or something like that, right? Um, and I thought I, I found this to be really a fun read and, and thought-provoking to think through, you know, whatever campaign we're running or being a part of and, and could it withstand this? And so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, excellent read. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I had the same reaction. I'm like, that, that's... You know, wow, what would I do? And, you know, yeah. those questions are great. And then to have someone discuss it out, what did they do, um, helps you focus your energy in what you would do if that same thing happened. So good job, Mr. Mike Schleiflourish Shay. I think he should start a YouTube channel. He really should. Blog. He might he might have a future in this industry if he yeah, really if you, focuses. Well, uh, if he ever publishes a book, I'm telling exactly. you, it's going to do well. It, Exactly. Uh, 13th Age, speaking of 13th Age, has a new Escalation edition coming in 2024. Um, this was a Gen Con announcement from Pelgrane Press. Uh, they announced this new version of 13th Age would come to Kickstarter next year and be backwards compatible with the current game, and playtesting will begin soon. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but thinking of the parallel to 5e and, and sort of that goal of you know, you want to update things, make it better, yeah. but keep it so you can still use all the material that exists. And, and so it'll be interesting to compare kind of how they do that compared to how 5th edition does it. But I love 13th yeah. Age. It's a fantastic game. And so I will for sure pick this up and I'm excited to see what they do with it. Um, they, were, they, they were giving out sort of a small pamphlet that, that had a bullet list of things mm -hmm. they, will, they will tweak and all of it sounded great to me. So Yeah, it'll be... Uh... It'll be interesting to, to check that out. Uh, last but not least, speaking of Kickstarter, uh, I wanted to mention Sebastian Crow's Guide to Drakenheim. Uh, it launched just a few hours ago. Uh, it is from the streaming team, The Dungeon Dudes, consisting of Monty Martin and Kelly McLaughlin. Um, and it is supported by Ghostfire Gaming's Forged with Ghostfire Kickstarter program. Just to let you know where it stands, in the first 20 minutes 
Uh, it had over 600 backers and over uh, $100,000 in backing. And as I check a couple hours later, uh, it just went off today, which is Thursday. We are now over 300,000 and up close to 200 backers. So I think it's going to be okay. Uh, I think so. This wow. is a follow-up to the $1.27 million Dungeons of Drakenheim Kickstarter, which uh, came out about a year ago and has been fulfilled already. People are already getting their stuff. So it is now time to f go from the city of Drakenheim, which the first Kickstarter detailed, to the whole world uh, of Drakenheim and wow. what you can do. It includes a new class, uh, new, you know, all sorts of new subsystems and tools and proficiencies and and uh so much good stuff there including for the first minis. time oh, lots and lots of minis uh cards spell cards but it also is going to have a, a tabletop uh virtual tabletop edition so you can get a roll 20 or a foundry version of everything in the game so yeah. you can check that, that out great. wow Impressive. on kickstarter now let's get to our main topic, talking again about 5e Revisited. Um, it's been 10 years since the public play test has started, eight years since the starter set, the first starter set released. So we're going to look at where we've been. And if we were redesigning 5e, where would we be going? Uh, last time we began our talk about building a character and everything that goes into that. Uh, we stopped just before we talked about feats. So let's pick up our discussion there. Um, I know that I think that you and I have a little different feeling on feats. Uh, both yeah, as as DMs, as players. Mm. Uh, but what do you think about feats in terms of where they are and where they might be going? I... I like feats, but I've been all over the place on feats, right? Like third edition was like a diet of feats. You just ate up feats. It was endless feats and they chained together and there were traps and there were obvious, incredibly powerful combinations. And that was fun. However, I feel that as I work more and the longer I go into fifth edition, I feel more and more like I want feats to be something else than what they currently are. I'm less concerned about whether they're optional or not and more about what they are doing for the game. And it's always hard, but the, the choice between, you know, am I a linguist or do I get, you know, plus 10 to my damage as an archer to every single thing I hit with my attack? Yeah. Um, those are in conflict. And, and I think fifth edition tried to say, we're going to give you a package of options, right? We're going to, we're going to tell a story. And I think feats like the chef feet kind of do that well, but many feats are really just plus 10 damage mm -hmm. that you have figured out how to mitigate the downside to. And, mm -hmm. and that's what you're going to do. Um, and I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had more than one campaign where at first level, you know, the, the archer or the barbarian fighter person, uh, they were doing, you know, 25 points of damage a hit. Yeah. And at fourth level, they were doing 25 points of damage a hit. And at seventh level, they were doing 28 points of damage, you know, <laughs> average per hit. Uh -huh. And it, it was sort of that, you know, that plus 
10 to 15 damage that because of the feet started at first level and sort of continued its way through uh, just because of one feat taken or a combination of a couple feats or an ability and a feat uh, doesn't do the game any favors. Uh, for sure. Yeah, and I, I play a, an archer ranger and, you know, my sharpshooter feat is a, a terrible game design idea, which I uh, embrace all too gleefully when I am reigning destruction. And, and, and as I make choices, I'm continually choosing things that help me further mitigate the minus five to attack and create more and more targets that are being hit my, by, by my plus 10 damage. And it means, you know, hundreds of points of damage are happening on the battlefield, which is beyond the, the scope of what should be happening for the game. And then I do yeah. some things to mitigate that so that I'm not a complete cheese weasel at the game, but I'm still being pretty cheesy about it. And, and it's right. not what should be designed, right? And like, this is a good example of like, you know, there are things that I am doing that aren't what I would design, right? And and so right. that's uh that's a problem. Um I also when I look at like the latest Unearthed Arcana, which one would hope would indicate, one would think would indicate where they're headed, mm -hmm. it really feels like they're strongly saying, you're just we're gonna get rid of feats being optional. Mm -hmm. We're going to give you feats, and you might get a feat based on your background which in theory should be a story component, but oh, if you don't have it, you just choose from this sort of boring menu of feats. And yet even looking at that feat that's supposed to represent backstory, I don't think it really does. And I think mm -hmm. it complicates the game. And so I, I'm, I'm unhappy with the situation. Uh, right. That's not to say I know how to fix it, but I find that Feats are distracting. They cause us to play in bad ways. They don't actually tell the story we think they're supposed to tell because of the way all of it is architected, right? Like it, it needs yeah. to be, I feel, stripped down to the bare bones and rebuilt to be whatever the goal is supposed to be because, because we've strayed yeah. from that goal and we're not achieving those goals. Yeah. I, I think you and I have both had situations, and we've talked about this before, where players that we know, whether they're in our games or in organized play or, or you know, just people that we've talked to say, you know, I shouldn't do this. Mm -hmm. I, th I, I've made choices that make the game less fun, but I have to make those choices. And it's, yeah. it's bizarre. And if you have well, a... It... Yeah. I feel it's especially less bizarre in fifth edition uh, in that I think that fourth edition and third edition had many more sort of toolkit choices that could feel a little more interesting and validating through their interesting nature v versus 5e. I feel like it doesn't have, like the, the utility toolkitty type of feats don't to me seem to be very fulfilling for players. So it, yeah. it really makes it feel like you've got to choose these more powerful options. And, and, and it's almost like you see people, regardless of the character they're creating, choosing the same feat. Right. Which is a really bad sign, right? It's like you feel yeah. like you must look at the same set of feats and choose from amongst those popular feats because anything else is just not even going to be fundering play. Right. 
And that's a problem because because every feat should be fun during play. Every feat should tell a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's complicated also by the fact that all of these things, classes, races, subclasses, backgrounds, they're they obviously carry story weight. Mm-hmm. But they carry game mechanical weight by giving you features. Races give you features. Classes give you features. Subclasses give you features. Backgrounds didn't give you quite as many features. Now they're Before. giving you more. <laughs> yeah. uh, and do you know how? How do you want your game to deliver these game mechanics to the player? Do you want them to be individual choices that the players make? Do you want them to choose from 60 different at first level or at the beginning, they're going to choose 10 features out of a list of a thousand. You probably don't want that. Yeah. If it's an advanced game, if you have, you know, if that's what you want your game to be, you can do it, but you're going to be eliminating a certain population of gamers by doing that. But you also ne- don't necessarily want them to make one choice and get their 10 features because then they can't sort of sculpt the character that they want. And if those choices are limited, chances are you're going to be playing the exact same character mechanically that somebody else at the table is playing. So yeah. you're as a game designer, you're weighing the number of choices and the weight of those choices and the scope of those choices against ease of play, but against of creating unique characters. So that's the people who are designing 5.5, 6E, whatever you want to call it, hopefully are weighing those choices, are looking at those things and not just saying, well, we've always had races, classes, uh, backgrounds, whatever. And so in order to handle the feet issue, you have to go back and handle those questions as well, all at the same yeah. time to make sure that the weight of choices it does not overwhelm new players and doesn't underwhelm existing players. And and the the way that 5e tries to do it, which is which is not a bad initial approach, is to say, well, every four levels you you get an ability score improvement. Or if you are using feats, then you can swap that ability score improvement for a feat instead, which may be a minor thing plus one ability being increased instead of two, or it right. may be a slightly stronger thing that doesn't give you any ability improvement at all. Mm-hmm. This is complicated by the design that your ability scores should not normally go above 20, right. which depending on how you built your character at level one means you have plenty of space to take a couple of feats as you progress through your career that give you no ability score whatsoever. So it's, it becomes this sort of, you know, a little bit of a, a a juggling thing and an optimization type thing, um, which isn't necessarily bad, but, but I I think that, um, well, I like that. I think level three or level four are a good time to get a feat Mm -hmm. because you've played your character enough to understand what sort of the baseline character should do. And now you get to differentiate it. Mm -hmm. I think that level one, is something I don't love because it it further makes it difficult for to get the game going 
and it further complicates a new player's experience of knowing what options to choose from, mm -hmm. especially if feats are sort of meaty things that involve either big choices or strong abilities or a menu of things that you can do, then, then it makes your level one play very complicated. Yeah. Well, would you, as you're saying that, the first thing that comes to mind is, assuming you get all of those questions that I talked about just a few minutes ago settled, and you are going to go with feats and you are going to go with feats at every certain number of levels, do you have different kinds of feats? And so maybe maybe you get a feat at first level, but it looks like a background rather than mm -hmm. a great weapon master. So chef, chef is a feat that's almost the background, right? Whereas great weapon master is, I take a minus five to hit to get a plus 10 damage. Right. Has nothing to do with yeah. how I live my life. Has nothing to do with what my character believes. It's just, I hit things very hard yeah. with, with my big weapon. Um, so maybe at, at one level you get, so these are a list of feats. And that way you can sort of balance them against each other more easily than just opening it up to, to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the system I would want to emulate in, 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 in all likelihood if I were you know, having this design task is uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord has quick levels. You, you, you advance quickly through them and it only has 10 levels. And at each level, there is a, a prescribed aspect of your character that gets improved. And often it's a choice. So you might have a choice between increasing your race in some way, furthering your race, or furthering your, you know, class. And then mm -hmm. the next level might be something that's tied to your um, sort of prestige path, sort of a, 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 right. a late, not your core class, but sort of your, your advanced degree of what you do. And yeah. what, what that does, and they tend to be smaller things, mm -hmm. right? And so what it does is it lets you decide which part of your story you want to advance and how to do so with something that's easy to learn and master but because the play is happening faster, it, it's still engaging without being overwhelming. And it means that, you know, you can say, well, I'm a dwarf and I'm going to really lean into my dwarf side by having these ability, you know, this, I'm going to take what's essentially a little mini feat that's going to make me sturdier, or it's going to give me, you know, some kind of ability against giant folk or something like that. And that leans into that story of your race, or I could instead choose to, advance whatever my my concept is in some other way like i played a half orc grave digger and he had a shovel as his weapon and over time i made the shovel magical as part of this sort of feat advancement system and so i told the story of this like you know dark half orc grave digger whose shovel was enchanted based on all the graves i dug right but yeah. each of those little things built upon that story in a really nice way and I didn't feel compelled through this system to just go for raw power, right? I was happy yeah. to add these story elements to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, feats, feats are sort of a wild card in, in this whole discussion because since they have either not been in the game or been in the game so much or mm -hmm. sort of been in the game or for fifth edition, yeah, they're optional in the game, except since everybody played with them in third and fourth edition, they're not optional for, for many people in their minds. Right. So, you know, it's, or if you make a human variant right in the core rules that say you get a feat, Hey, guess which is the most popular uh, race to play via D and D beyond. Right. That's going to be the variant human. 
Well, and, and just because people play it or use it does not mean that's what's good for the game, right? And one of the things I've right. seen in, in the recent D&D polls is they've asked this question, do you use feats in your game? You know, always, never, sometimes. And I, I worry about what wizards will draw from that answer because the answer is probably going to be always to most people. Right. That doesn't mean that we should have feats at first level. And, and right. I almost want to say disregard that answer and, and just study play, right? And watch what a new what it's like for a new player to sit there and go through that list of feats and choose them. And and maybe like what you were sort of saying, which matches this sort of um, the, the concept of, of the um, uh, of, of the Rob Schwab game is is that if you had feats that had different types and you got different types at different times, that might make it easier because your menu to look through is lower. Mm -hmm. And maybe it creates an, a nice, exciting way to create more feats over time without overwhelming the game. Um, and maybe corresponds better to the type of play, right? Like if I'm taking some sort of background feat at first level, then maybe those can be really soft, interesting things that aren't overwhelming. But it requires diligence. That's the problem, right? Is that you have to be so careful with your feet design that you don't create that one thing that everybody mm -hmm. goes for, right? Right, right. Yeah. And uh, we, we'll talk We'll talk about game balance, I'm sure, more. Um, because, right, that's that's really what we're... We talk about game balance and so often, you know, the answer is, well, there's no such thing as game balance. And and yet, no, there's not, right? It's not, we're not playing rock, paper, scissors mm -hmm. where there's three equally valued and equally powerful options and you can only choose those three things. But there is a balance in terms of you can become unbalanced to the point where things become unfun, whether the characters are out of whack with each other or one or more characters becomes out of whack with the math of the game, with the math of the game uh, expects and we'll talk about that again when we talk about tiers of play but yeah it's yeah and and you made a good point here in the show notes that on the other hand it's that idea of we do want to differentiate characters and let let the player have the tools with which to create their unique view right and so if you want to be uh you know a warrior that's also a tracker or uh, you know, a cleric that's also a chef or, you know, any of those kinds of things, those are really awesome, rich interactions. And so you do want to allow for those kinds of opportunities without the balance problems and the analysis paralysis and character creation taking days and so on. Yeah. All right. So the next thing uh, in our building a character is attacks and weapons. And this is really a question about terminology a question about game definition and and how confusing it can sometimes become do you want to talk about that for just a second yeah um i mean you make a really good point here in the show notes the question of what is a weapon attack what is a spell attack what does it just mean to say attack what is a ranged attack versus a melee attack a finesse weapon versus a heavy weapon just plain old weapon uh, monk weapons, unarmed attacks. Uh, these, you know, I think when, when we first started playing 5e, very quickly this was shown to be a real source of confusion. And they tried to clarify it. There was some errata that tried to change the terms. 
But I, in, in general, I, I still find this confusing, right? It's a thing that I have to look up if I'm going to create anything that's related to these, um, to this sort of topic, especially on the monk side. I have to go look this up and make really sure what the languages you're supposed to use. And to me, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know yeah. how you feel about it. Well, I, I feel the same way. I feel like when you create a game where terminology matters because the rules as written are supposed to matter and not get into, well, as written, it says this, but we intended it to be this. We didn't mean to use the word weapon here when we should have said something else because weapon is a game mechanical tool, game mechanical term. So you think of like a monk rogue, multi, multi-class, mm -hmm. uh, you know, can they sneak attack with their unarmed strikes? And the answer should be quick. The answer should yeah. be easy. The answer sh you should you shouldn't have to flip to seven different pages in three different books to figure out if a unarmed strike from a monk is actually, you know, a finesse weapon. Blank. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. the errata to find out, right? Like exactly. Exactly. Um, the 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 easier you can make the terminology and the more concise you can be with what interacts with what, the better your game will be. Yeah. The problem is then for people that like complex um, sort of tactical games, you need to give them enough options to satisfy the, that, that analysis and the choices that are made. Yeah. And so you sometimes have to differentiate things. And so it becomes sort of confusing. Yeah. And, I mean, we saw that with the like green flame blade and, and, and yeah. those others that were in sword course adventures guide where then they had to receive errata because that whole idea of where is this actually originating from and how does it fit the language of other yeah. spells? Oh wait, these are problems. They're creating interactions we don't want. Now we've got to go back and reward them in ways that are non-intuitive so that framework really needs to be thought out in advance. And I think, you know, there was a little bit there that went, that was off in right. how they use this language that otherwise works pretty well. I think, you know, much of this ranged attack and melee attack, finesse weapon, a lot of things work well. And there are just a few pieces here that, that just create some real confusion often. Another one is the shadows ability to drain strange strength points. <laughs> Right. So the, a, a shadow attacks, you're the DM, you roll a natural 20, you know, it's a, whatever, a D six plus, you know, drains strength. Is that critical hit? Does that double the D four that you roll to drain the strength? Mm -hmm. uh, the answer, by the way, is no, but it it's because, you know, is, is the, is the shadow really damaging, damage, right? Is, is the shadow damaging their strength? Yes. But is it quote unquote damage in the rules? No, it is a penalty to their strength. And so that is not as much as I love to, you know, do 2d4 instead of 1d4 damage to their strength. It's not damage <laughs> to their strength. It's, you know, a penalty to their strength score or whatever it's specific. The real answer, Sean, is to apply the shadow template to an intellect devour and just. There you go. I don't even. Yeah, it sounds good to me. Sounds good yeah. to me. I'm all over that. Um, but so so it's yeah. that terminology that we 
you know, we as game designers mm-hmm. need to really take a close, hard look at um, for across the board for monsters, for for character uh, races, mm-hmm. classes, um, and you know what what do these things mean? Yeah, and the function they serve, right? It's like finesse weapon has a, a very important function to enable more than just strength characters because it's mm-hmm. problematic if the game only relies upon the strength ability that becomes way too powerful. So you want to allow for some other concepts and this allows for dexterity to work, which can end up being a little too powerful too, but but it's better right. than just having it all in the bucket of strength. Right. And and then if you can if you can do extra damage and get the extra two hit with with dexterity, why ever take strength? Right. And so that then you get into what are the dump stats of an addition. And people would say strength is the dump. If you don't use uh encumbrance, strength is the dump stat of, of fifth edition. It's not charisma anymore. Uh it's it's literally strength because there are fewer saving throws, mm-hmm. I think, for strength than charisma. Um and you yeah. can still get all the bonuses that you need uh through, through dexterity to do damage with a weapon. So yeah, it's, it's just, so yeah, if there well, are ways to simplify that, uh, a game yeah. would usually be better off doing that. Yeah. And I, and I, and you know, we mentioned that because this is something that's spoken of in chapter one, it, it provides some definitions here, which then later you go on to read the classes and that's where you end up with the confusion when it doesn't quite match that simple description. Yeah. So it's important that whatever you're describing up front, isn't going to be undone by the later design. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about this last piece of mm-hmm. this chapter, which is tiers of play. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a, you know, this is a question uh, that I thought when I first read it and actually going back a couple of editions, what do the tiers of play mean? Are they just numbers that they threw in because they seem to work well do they actually mean anything so what would we do with tiers of play and this sort of goes along with the the last thing which is advancement and and xp um you know how many tiers of play should there be should there be a huge difference from one tier to the other Uh, um what do you think well it's fascinating to read the descriptions right where you know your tier one which includes these super volatile, perilous uh, level one, uh, all the way to four. And they basically say, well, level starts begins when you get spells like Fireball and Lightning Bolt. Yeah. Which is, okay, you know, like that's a, a pretty honest answer, but it but it's a, a really interesting one, right? Like, well, that's when yeah. you're strong, right? When you get these. Yeah. Um, and then you, and that goes all the way to level 10, which feels like a really wide thing, five to 10. There's a lot going on in those tiers. And then you've mm-hmm. got 11 to 16 as your tier three, and then a shorter 17 to 20 as your tier four. And there's so many things going on with tiers of play. Um, yeah. There's so little tier four play. And, and I know folks will always say, but oh, it's not supported. But even whenever you see the support for it, so mm-hmm. few games reach those tiers. Yeah. And. And it, and it makes me wonder what the point of all, what is it, like you said, what is it that this tiering is supposed to do and does it help us? When I design things, I find these tiers do not work for me. Right. Um, you've got a note here that I agree with. 
you know, level one should be its own tier mm -hmm. or make a level zero option. I think that's a yeah. really good. Yeah. I would, I would make character creation a session zero and, and zero level or first level play its own, not its own game, but its own thing. So when you pick up a box set, you know, you could get three sessions of play and combine character creation at session zero and, and your first couple of adventures all into one and make that its own tier. Yeah, I, I like to, you know, the more I think about our discussion that we had last time where we threw around this idea of a framework, mm -hmm. I really like that concept that you could say, hey, I want to be, you know, uh, an elven mage. And, you know, that would involve a very quick put together framework for, say, my session zero level zero. Mm -hmm. And then other things would happen upon that later at level one that would really take it beyond. And that way, if I don't want to have that sort of introductory, well, if I want the introductory experience, great. Now it's easy mm -hmm. to do. I did not overcomplicate right. the game. I really learned the basics of my character and character creation was super fast. You know, put A plus B together, make a couple choices done. If I want to, I can skip that goal the way to the level one start but and and make a few more decisions right but but uh but i've got that option and the game is supporting it and mm -hmm. and maybe you know level one is is much hardier level zero is is lower but it now it supports those cr one fourth type mm -hmm. monsters and so on yep. so we can really fight weak things and can make that play more interesting there's there's a lot there that i like yeah and and we're going back to that uh, idea of alignment or what could replace alignment this session zero, first level, zero level play could go all the way back to, you know, what what icon are you associated with mm -hmm. and why, right? Tell me that story. Yeah. And you can really build a character and build the party together in a way that most people find enhance the game when everyone is connected in some way. And, you know, that could be a huge part of the game. That could, some people might only want to play that. And, yeah, I, and that I, would be cool. I really... I, I'm 100% behind that because when I run games for new players at conventions, they latch on to the highest level concepts and then they want to throw their story on top. Mm -hmm. The more that the experience tries to tell them about their spell choices or feats or their particular ability, it draws away and, and they may get sucked into it, right? They may get mm -hmm. interested by it, but it draws them away from that narrative side which is what creates the absolute best tables, right? The absolute mm -hmm. best experiences. I'm just a sneaky gnome rogue that, that is doing this kind of, you know, I stabby stab with both my hands and you know, I lost my parents, right? <laughs> you know, like like yeah. those kinds of high level, very simple things are what lead to the super fun. And if I start getting into like, here's how backstab works, that's where we end up playing a different game that is far less fun. Right. Yeah. And this really leads into the last point about advancement and XP, because mm -hmm. it, if you look at the 5e rules, if you look at adventure XP per adventuring day <laughs> and the leveling chart for PCs, characters should level roughly either one or one and a half or two adventuring days. So after 300 experience points to go from level one to level two, an adventuring day should give 300 points per first level character at first level play. So one adventuring day, your second level, and it doesn't get much better. Like I said, sometimes it gets almost up to two adventuring days before you level. 
So the game right there is telling you how it expects to be played, but I don't think Wizards of the Coast wants you to think of a campaign as in we're adventuring or we're leveling once every day yeah. that we adventure. So and all the game of isn't this... written for that, right? Because the abilities right. you're getting are so complicated that you need mm -hmm. a few play sessions to understand what you just got from your character. And what I see in play a lot of times, if you play at this kind of rate is that a, a player gets an ability and literally can't learn it by the time they get the next one. And so they become right. less and less proficient at their characters unless they're really schooled in RPGs and particularly 5th mm -hmm. edition. Right. So, so some people want to level as quickly as possible. Some people want the story to drag out. And not even I don't mean drag out in a bad way. I mean to mm -hmm. be expansive, to, to really interact with it. And and if you're already at level 20 by the time, you know, the, the 20th session comes around, it can be fun because you get to play level 20, but how much of the story did you actually get to partake in? So yeah. this is, to me, this is the crux of the, this is the biggest issue with D&D &D for me uh, at this point is what does the game expect in terms of leveling and what does the story that you tell expect in terms of leveling? Um and when I read this, we, we ask questions like, how quickly should a campaign go from level one to, to the end? Uh, you know, how, how high should it go? Is, do we need 20 levels? Uh, should tier four be a separate rule set? You know, these are questions I think you put in. Maybe I did. But for me, what I would do once I thought about it, I would release a game that goes has 10 levels. Mm -hmm. It slows progression down a bit has a less steep math curve, I would flatten the curve even more and allow the play to expect one or more than one or two adventuring days of encounters before leveling. Um, so at first level, you, you get the, your things and you play the game more slowly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's easier to play first level characters with fourth level characters or third level characters with seventh level characters um, and slow it down. You, so you don't have to slow it down, but the math um, encourages you to slow it down a bit. Then it, then I would do that for, for my game here, one to 10 sort of fewer choices, more story. A year later, I put out the high-level playbook. Now you can add game-breaking spells. Now you get wishes. Now you get these big things. Um, mm -hmm. Now you can add epic destinies, where the math ramps up a bit. Right. Also Paragon make it so you can start and there. classes and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Exactly. Paragon Path, Prestige Class, Epic Destiny, whatever you want to call it. Um, now you can actually change the way the math works. And make it ramp it up, you know, exponentially in terms of hit points, damage, all of that, yeah. much more tactical play. And then make a way to start at that 10th level or 11th level if, if you're a really tactical player. This way you yeah. get the base of the game out. You get the story focused players who want less rules and more story. Give them a game that's best for them. Mm -hmm. A year later boom hit hit with the heavy stuff that the tactical players want that still works with the base game 
although you can start at a higher level and you are hitting all your all your customers quickly you know within a year of release so yeah i'm i'm uh i like the idea of separating high level play from the base game um if only because every single edition has shown that that was the area of the game that was least play tested, least understood by the game designers and least capable of functioning properly. We saw yeah. that in third edition, fourth edition, fifth edition. Um, and the only reason it wasn't pop a problem in earlier editions was because the, the games operated differently. So it didn't make a that much of a difference, but really high level play needs to be really written at a separate time. Once the game mm -hmm. designers have seen how the game is operating in the wild, Precisely. You, you almost can't do it ahead of time. Right. I mean, we haven't seen a game that does that properly and, and it requires rebalancing the game, right? We've seen this always that, that this becomes a problem for the designers in that once you state that your monsters operate in the following way, and you have a book full of monsters that are supposed to represent the toughest things in the world, Mm -hmm. you, you can't work with that. Right. I mean, like right. we have two versions of Tiamat and neither is threatening, right? Like yeah. that is a problem. We have versions of Orcus that aren't super threatening and you know, all these, and, and it just requires that every book that comes out has to be like the other stuff when mm -hmm. really they should be completely different. Right. I mean, yeah. we look at uh, the stats for uh, Zariel or, or, you know, any of these powerful demon Lords devils, and they just, they don't, even represent logic, let alone what players should face. And it's all because yeah. of this. So yeah, absolutely separate it out and write it later and then focus on it in a way that the game, because the game is always trying to, to serve all of these tiers, it can never sell people on high level play. Mm -hmm. Instead, what we end up doing is we end up pushing it into lower level play where it works better. Right. Yeah. And you see this in things like Descent into Avernus, but it is in fact a thing like Descent into Avernus that could be this amazing high level experience with high level type of concepts and so on, where it would right. really work. And, and that would be, I think, far more engaging. And, and then I think it could do what the game doesn't do currently, which is that it doesn't sell high level play. It all just right. sounds harder to run, harder to play less rewarding, more frustrating. And and if you yeah. gave it the proper emphasis and made it exciting, it would probably feel really epic and that would be great. Yeah. I, you know, that the, the more you talked about it, the more you were selling me on it. I thought you might come back with, well, these are the reasons why that wouldn't work, but you know, all the things that we see mm -hmm. that are problematic at lower level play now, right? Everyone immune to poison, everyone, right. everyone getting temporary hit points at, fifth level to the point where it's like, oh, I can give you seven. Oh, I can give you eight. Well, you know, all of that can be that all of that can can be pushed back into that higher level play. Yeah. And you can keep the challenge. You don't have to push demons and devils and all of that into in lower and lower. And uh yeah. you know, really, really make it work in that in that sense. And I like yeah. that. And I want to say a thing about your, 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 what you were saying at the first part of this, which is what should your progression, how quickly should you advance in the levels one to 10? 
and I can honestly be sold either way. Like I like that mm -hmm. shadow, the demon Lord concept where you're advancing quickly play as fast, mm -hmm. uh, which also lets us get to the high levels if we want to, or run mm -hmm. a new campaign. Um, and, and you're getting little things. So it's all very manageable mm -hmm. or make it longer. And then it's okay to have these meteor abilities because I will have the time to grasp them and work through them. Mm -hmm. The other thing is we have an XP chart here, <laughs> but <laughs> all of the recent adventures, including right. Spelljammer, do not use these XP charts. Mm -hmm. They're really using a story-based advancement yeah. where they say, hey, at the end of chapter one, everybody gains a level. And guess what? Chapter one is not a day of adventuring or two. It is often a much longer experience, right? You know, weeks uh, often or a week, and and so I think the game's progression should have to answer to that story. If we're going to use this story-based advancement, mm -hmm. then that's our pace, right. and 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 that's what should match, right? If what we're doing is exploring a large temple, defending the city from a huge attack. Um, you know, but it's a big thing that we're accomplishing, then leveling should sort of match those kinds of stories that we're telling right. uh, and work within that and, 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 and be flexible enough because sometimes it will be, you know, a massive defense of a city, uh, which maybe just takes two days, mm -hmm. but other times it's a very large complex or weeks of walking through a jungle. Yeah. And, and so it, it needs to support all those models and be rewarding enough um, and yeah. simple enough to run for everybody. Yeah. And the and worst thing, right, is you get a new player and you'd say to them, Hey, you defended the town, gain a level. Okay. Now you, you know, raided the temple, gain a level that new player. If <laughs> you could really blow them out of the water with, with that yeah. experience. It's true. And are you really gaining that much for it? Yeah. And, and this goes to the larger problem which we may or may not talk about over the course of of our examination of 5e which is the resource management you know portion of the game is is dnd &D going to be a resource management game with a story problem yeah. or a story game with a resource management problem if we could take that equate out of the equation and just say here are some ways to run it uh so that your characters feel challenged yeah. uh, you know because we expect you to take three long rests over the, or two or three long rests over the course of a day and regain these things and really feel the pinch of the, the challenges as your resources dwindle versus, well, if you can get through with all your hit points, this one encounter you've won, uh, then, you know, make it, make it one game or the other, or tell us how it can be one or the other and work properly but you can't not tell us and just let us sort of uh, paddle our way through this raging storm of, <laughs> of uncertainty. That, that's a tough one, right? That is a really tough one uh, because it gets into that whole concept of how you're building your game, uh, hit points, death, damage expressions, monster CRs, all of it. And, and, and what is it that we want out of that lethality? So there's probably a place yeah. that we could probably put a pin in that. There's probably a place oh, we yeah. want to go back to that and, and really delve into that. Right. 
Yep, I, I'm sure we will at some point. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely it's worthy of its own, you know, four weeks of discussion, breaking down all the different uh, concepts within that. But uh, next week we will get into things like races uh, and what they mean to the game and how they're changing. But for now, we are going to sign off. Thank you so much to our listeners and thank you to our patrons who uh, support us on patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, Teos, where can people find your brilliant work? Ooh, find all my work, brilliant or otherwise, at alphastream.org. That'll lead you to my YouTube and other efforts on Twitter. I am at AlphaStream. How about you, Sean? Uh, I am on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can follow the podcast at MasteringDND. Um, we have forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. And we do have a YouTube channel, believe it or not. There's been some issues getting our stuff up there, but I think we're working that out. So you can leave comments on the YouTube channel or go to the misdirectedmark.com website where you can leave comments on each individual episode. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So Teos, now that we've cleared out chapter one of the player's <laughs> handbook and talked about it what are we going to do now uh we are going to embrace the force of law and go battle the forces of chaos and have that be the whole focus of our campaign for sure the evil's fine just <laughs> watch out for the chaos Ooh.